Greetings, friends. My name is Weston Nakamura from Blockworks Macro in Tokyo. It is Tuesday, June 6, 2023, after Asia markets close, and welcome to the Market Depth Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia-Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight today. The Reserve Bank of Australia shock hikes rates yet again, and they are citing potentially more to come. And so what's the read-through for the Fed, who is now talking about a potential June rate skip, as well as why the Aussie dollar price action matters for risk assets? Okay, and then lastly, after that, I'm going to follow up yet again on the China properties sector, as I had a big revelation today um, that forced me to revamp my entire theory of insider trading with these Chinese property firms. Okay, so I'll get into that uh, at the end. But first, let's just take a look at markets for today. It's yet another strong day of outperformance from Japan with the Nikkei 225 increasing yet again and hitting yet another 33-year, new 33-year high up almost 1% on the day. The index is now up nearly 5% in the past week. Um, since the start of the month, essentially. Okay, and shares today were led by the Warren Buffett trading houses, by and large. Just a quick point on the Nikkei uh, 2 to 5 average, okay? So as I've been saying, you know, <laughs> at nauseum, many of the heavyweights on the, end, on the index are names that are related to the semiconductor and the SPE space, okay? So the Nikkei index, although it is a major global DM index, it's essentially like a semiconductor and like tech index. In fact, it has been for years in terms of its sort of makeup, okay? Now, um, I know I've said that many times, but just take a look at this chart, these two charts, okay? So the top chart is the Nikkei 225 and the SOX index, that's the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, okay? Now, they move very closely together, um, with one another over the long term. And then if you look at the bottom chart, that's NVIDIA and Nikkei Futures, like year to date. And as we all know, the NVIDIA chart has been up and to the right, um, and it resembles that of the Nikkei, which has gone up and to the right. And they actually match each other pretty well, as, uh, pretty closely as well, okay? So basically, if you just take those those two together, right, the top and the bottom, the top one, once again, it's kind of in a longer-term, broader-based sort of theme. It's, you know, the, the Nikkei index basically correlates with semiconductors, be they U.S. semiconductors or global, right? I'm just using the SOX uh, index just because it's easy to do so. And then, so you have that working for it currently at the moment. And then in addition to that, you have the bottom, you have the NVIDIA kicker, okay? And that's happening just, that breakout on NVIDIA is happening just as Nikkei was breaking through that 30K level, the 30,000 um, level on foreign inflows. And so all of that in combination is, by and large, why the Nikkei is absolutely on fire this year, far more than any other market or other, other region, Okay. Um, so, you know, it's just a whole combination, a confluence of different factors and sort of themes. And those themes happen to just be the ones that are the most, you know, in, in favor globally right now. Um, and the stars are all aligned and that's why this is by and large happening. And still, uh, domestics are still not buying, um, still not long. So you still have those flows to, to have to force to come in. Okay. So I know I keep mentioning this, but I just wanted to show you this angle via charts 
visually as to why, at least in part, in, in large part, why the Nikkei is currently rallying in the manner that it is. Okay, let's talk about the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia. The RBA surprised markets with a 25 basis point rate hike today. Consensus was for no change. And so that now brings the cash rate to 4.1%. Now, this is the second consecutive surprise rate hike um, as they hiked 25 basis points in the May policy meeting, the previous one. And after having left rates on hold at 3.6% in the April meeting. Okay, so in April, they paused. And then last month in May, they hiked. And then they hiked yet again. Okay, in other words... That April meeting was the skip, right? Which is what we're now expecting the Fed to do next week. So the RBA, the RBA, they cited the need to hike, you know, today as inflation risks not only still remain persistent, primarily in um, services inflation, but they're doing so despite knowing that they're continuing to like really strangle mortgage holders in Australia, among among other kind of you know trade-offs as well. And furthermore, RBA noted that more rate hikes uh, could come going forward, okay, as basically as the, the committee, see, you know, just remains very resolute in just slaying the CPI dragon back to its 2 to 3% target, okay? Now, look, I've made this same comment on market depth from the last RBA meeting when they shocklifted rates off the pause mode, okay? But I'm going to reiterate it again, okay? So first of all, no, there aren't like exact parallels to the United States or the EU or the UK respective economies and policies. Okay, each country and region is its own idiosyncratic situation. Obviously, okay, it's like it's it annoys me when people say like like the RBA doesn't matter; it's a different economy, and you know, therefore, it doesn't have any translation or relevance to the Fed or whatever. Like, yeah, obviously, okay, there's no need to list out like an infinite list of differences okay but that's obviously not the way that it should be looked at you know the, why the rba matters okay and what the rba does whether they pause again today or if they hike again today is that here we have a major central bank of a major developed economy who's basically extremely flexible um in implementing policy in as kind of real time as it gets okay so the fact that they paused in April alone, that in itself was a big deal. And they did so in order to observe the long and variable lags of the policy effect, Okay, uh, which at the time they even acknowledged that some, some of the more recent rate hikes they did have yet to really even hit the economy and you know, kind of be, become visible within the economy. But then at the very next meeting, they resumed rate hiking, Okay. So that pause and then resume hiking itself, those two kind of in back-to-back combination, that in itself breaks from so-called traditional policy path of like a central bank just doing, just going in the same directional path of rate hikes or rate cuts one after another, after another, after another, until the cycle is done in succession, right? And therefore, you know, when the first time you get a policy rate unchanged then it's supposed to be this like carved in stone rule that that's the end of that cycle and then the next move in rates will be in the opposite direction whenever that may be the rba really blew that whole cycle thing apart in the last two meetings or really just in the last meeting okay by re-hiking after pausing and so i personally don't know why there was such a skewed consensus for no change 
for this RBA meeting, going into the meeting. Or even if it was overwhelming consensus um, for a rate hike, I'd still be, you know, just as surprised at how one-sided the consensus assumptions um, would be, right? Because the moment that the RBA resumed hiking after pausing at that last meeting, they ripped up the entire modern how to central bank textbook, and they're now essentially just they're a wild card central bank. Okay, so as long as CPI is still well north of their target, even with or especially with things breaking to counter justify more hikes, then isn't every RBA meeting after that a 50 50 coin toss? Like, I, I was just very surprised at how one sided it was. And then the other reason I was surprised that this was a surprise to people and to markets was because following that pause decision two meetings ago, Governor Lowe and company had stated very clearly a number of you know times that further rate hikes aren't just like a possibility, but they lean towards more of a likely probability. Um, and then at the last meeting, when you know indeed that probable outcome of a rate hike came to reality, the RBA still had that same language of, and we may very well do more rate hikes going forward. And so they did today. And then today, once again, the RBA is saying more rate hikes may be needed going forward. Okay, And so if the next meeting, if all else equal in terms of like CPI and broader macro picture, as well as all else equal with the RBA rhetoric in the meantime, if they then hike rates again at the next one, and then it's still taken as a shock, then that shock itself actually that wouldn't be as shocking to me anymore at that point because what it would suggest is that at least as far as you know non-australian domestic economists are concerned okay but this notion of like central banks like non-flexibility and no optionality you know must be so ingrained in the minds of like modern western policy analysts economists or whatever that that they keep surprising themselves when when these things happen, right? Look, we're in unprecedented times. We're always in unprecedented times. Every moment that passes is by definition different, and therefore it's without precedence, and therefore it's unprecedented, okay? I think it's very dangerous to just copy and paste some sort of past pattern of policy from an irrelevant era as the one and only, like, holy approach because that's how it's been done before, Right? Maybe it's because I'm in a region in which at least my local central bank happens to be a meeting-to-meeting or even intermeeting policy roulette table, okay? And so staying on my toes and expecting the unexpected um, and, you know, shock and awe as the, the norm, um, maybe because of that I'm accustomed to it. So my takeaway from the RBA and the RBA application to other central banks is, yeah, Obviously, always remember and know your your history, okay? But know it, but don't make like a jello mold out of it and then try to cram any given future uncertain like setup into it, okay? So Fed is currently floating this like skip concept out there. Great. So if they don't skip next week and hike 25 basis points, don't have a heart attack. And if they do skip next week, don't carve into stone in like a, you know, this is 100% certainty of a July 25 basis point rate hike. Because they said skip, and they skipped. And that means hike comes next. No, skip doesn't mean anything other than starting an era of flexible option- optionality. Okay? Like, the genie's 
out of the bottle now. Okay, that's the significance of the skip. It's not the twenty-five basis points in June or July. Okay, it's the bigger picture break from consensus norms. So if the FOMC is able to pull that off, then you have to be like a blank sheet of paper, meeting to meeting, going into an intra meeting for the FOMC and for any central bank for that matter. Okay, um, that's all. Now let's talk about the Aussie dollar, which made a very sharp move to the upside today. Um, wasn't really that long lasting, but so for those of you who might not be too familiar with currencies, um, and by no means am I like someone who is, but let's talk about Aussie yen. Okay. AUD JPY. Aussie yen is a currency pair that sometimes exhibits sort of risk as a price action, largely due to its use as a carry trade. Okay. And a carry trade is basically when you sell or borrow with or fund with a low yielding currency like the yen and you buy a relatively higher yielding currency like the aussie dollar and then by doing so what you're doing is you're capturing the yield differentials between aud rates and jpy rates okay and because yen rates are always like on the floor perpetually for the last you know however many decades yen is always kind of used as the go-to cheap funding currency okay so aussie yen aud jpy that used to be the go-to carry trade currency pair. I guess it still is to a certain extent, but it really was, um, you know, because of the fact that JGB yields were on the floor and Aussie rates yielded several percentage points higher. Okay. And so what happens is every trading day that you have a positive carry, okay, where you have like a, you know, your uh, yield spread, a positive yield spread, you actually get your trading account credited. And so what traders would do is to go long the Aussie yen carry trade um, and use leverage. And by using leverage, it juices up your carry returns. And then you use those proceeds to then go long risk assets, okay? Or anything really, right? Um, there's actually an RBA research paper written out there a few years ago about how Japan retail massively crowded into the Aussie yen carry trade in the mid-2000s to such size that much of that um, had then found its way into helping fuel the subprime CDO bubble in the U.S., you know, leading up to 2008. And then pre-Lehman in like July of 2008, the leveraged long AUDJPY carry trade saw like this face-ripping, vicious unwind in which AUDJPY basically got like cut in half or something within like three months. Aussie dollar got destroyed, yen surged. So just look up a chart of AUDJPY and go to just 2008 and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Like the middle of the year just gets cut in half. Okay, but that aside, since then, Aussie and carry trade would still be used on and off um, as as like the you know carry trade of choice to, to fund risk positions, such as being long SPX. Um, and so therefore... AUD, JPY, and SPX would sometimes correlate and correlate very tightly. Okay, take a look at this chart of Aussie yen, AUD, JPY, and SPX E-minis. Um, this is from like, what, two years back or so? This is from mid-pandemic. Um, so from March of 2020, I think it's like March 16th is the exact date, March 16, 2020. But there is like an exact date in which Aussie yen bottoms right before SPX does. And then after that, they just move in lockstep nonstop for about, you know, like a year and a half. Okay. That's the Aussie and carry trade that's being put on. And the proceeds from that are had been used to go long SPX. Okay. Now, 
you might be wondering, why would anyone put on the Aussie N carry trade in March 2020 when the RBA and every central bank had cut rates to the floor, right? Because when they do that, there's no carry to be had. Even with JGBs on the floor, there's no yield spread differential to exploit and take advantage of, right? So the thing is, carry traders, of course, they want a juicy yield spread. Um, and so a global QE environment provides you know, no such yield differentials indeed. But what carry traders really want, or rather what the enemy of a levered carry trader is, is yield volatility. Because if you're long Aussie yen carry trade and capturing that yield spread on leverage, right? Things are great as long as that yield spread either stays static from when you opened it the trade or if it widens. But if the Aussie to JGB yield spread were to compress either because JGB yields go up or Aussie yields pull down um, and that differential narrows, then your account gets debited by the broker. And if you're on a lot of leverage, you will get your position liquidated. And so that's why the enemy of a levered carry trader is yield volatility. Okay, you don't want yields on either side to like swing around. You just want them to stay still. And that way you can just maintain your yield spread, especially if you're using leverage. Okay, so with that in mind, going back to March 2020 um, and the global rate slashing and QE with essentially just, you know, one uniform global yield at, you know, near zero and therefore no yield differentials to exploit. Why would anyone put the carry trade on then of all times? Okay. Because on March 16th, 2020, or whatever that date was, somewhere around that date, okay, um, something crazy happened. The RBA joined the Bank of Japan and became the second and only other major central bank to institute yield curve control, okay? And so now what do you have? So you have JGB yields pinned down by policy of the Bank of Japan's yield curve control, essentially keeping... Uh, yields from fluctuating on the JPY side, which is fantastic for carry traders, right? Because the funding half of the, you know, of the pair's yield volatility has been subdued by BOJ policy. But then in addition to that, you now have the RBA now pinning Aussie yields down with RBA's yield curve control and thereby dampening or killing off yield fluctuations on the Aussie rate side. And so that means that at that moment that the RBA joined the Bank of Japan, in you know being the only two major central banks instituting yield curve control that means that the biggest enemy of the carry trader yield volatility has been magically eliminated by dual central banks yield curve control policy on both sides of AUD and on JPY and so who cares if the Aussie to JGB yield spread is far less wide than it used to be it's still something positive right and so as long as the BOJ and the RBA are both running yield curve control then pour on the leverage to the max, right? Because yield volatility is dead. And just make that small yield spread into a very, very large one via excessive leverage and just blindly go long the Aussie yen carry trade. And that's what traders did. And when they did, they generated proceeds um, and they looked around in March 2020 and saw that everything, every single financial asset just got hit down, you know, on the 30% off sale rack or more, right? And so they just went long SPX with their AUD JPY carry trade proceeds um, at SPX and Aussie yen lows. 
And that's why Aussie N and SPX were so highly correlated over that next year and change until RBA's yield curve control started to fall apart in mid to late 2021. And then they eventually threw in the towel. And I think it was like November of 2021. Um, and the levered Aussie yen carry to fund the long SPX trade was over. Um, and those two kind of decoupled. Okay. But until they did, it was a fantastic trade at the time. And during that time, that's when I was saying things like the RBA was more consequential to SPX directionally than the fed was in terms of directional trading okay um so that trade ended okay but if you look at this over the last several weeks of this year um, recently it seems that this might be re-emerging this relationship of adjpy and spx minis um, and the correlation seems to be getting gradually um tighter okay so basically because what you have is Aussie dollars, first of all, has um, the AUD side has now reloaded its like positive yield spread, right? So there is like a, you know, carry. There's there's yield available, right? Um, and JGBs are still pinned under yield curve control. However, until, you know, what, April of this year or so, right? The JGB yield volatility part was highly in question because if the assumption of you know, like BOJ was suddenly going to lift yield curve control trading bands and you have a short yen levered carry trade position, you're screwed, okay? But gradually, as of late, markets began to accept that the Bank of Japan isn't moving on yield curve control anytime soon. And so as that became more accepted, um, that's where you're starting to see an increasing recorrelation between Aussie yen and SPX. Because once again, you have Aussie yields that are yielding far above uh, JGB yields, so you have a very nice wide yield spread, um, and half of that uh, equation is still pinned down by policy, the JPY side. Um, I'll also say that this might be totally coincidental. I don't know if it's actually the carry trade that's being put on or not. Okay, just something that I noticed today to point out. Um, and if indeed the Aussie and carry trade is back on and is being used to fund longs and SPX, um, or actually, you know what? It's likely being used to fund long Nikkei, if anything. Um, but either way, if the RBA shock lifts rates and Aussie yen jumps higher, then perhaps risk assets will too, and vice versa. Okay, so that's why I want to flag the Aussie yen. Um, to keep on your watch list. So that's it for the Aussie dollar. Now, I want to discuss my being wrong, potentially, of my original theory of Chinese officials insider trading and signaling on policy commitment to the property sector. So I came across this article today on Bloomberg, um, which talks about how over a dozen Chinese developer stocks are at risk of being delisted from stock exchanges in China. It's a very interesting article. I learned a lot about forced delisting criteria and like conditions that can be, you know, triggered. Things like you know, minimum operating revenues and negative pro uh, negative net profits and all that. But just check this chart out. This is from Bloomberg. Okay, one of the criteria to trigger a delisting in China is if the stock price closes below one yuan per share for twenty consecutive trading days. Okay, I guess sub one yuan is like, you know, the equivalent of like a Chinese penny stock. Um, and getting delisted is a very bad thing 
especially for like these developers and but i guess in just in general right because you know like the, this is a source of uh, key funding that they that they desperately need you know like raising equity is basically the only last ditch source of funding left and that's even if that's if that's even possible if they could even pull that off but they can't go to the debt markets obviously if there are you know you want penny stock right so a chinese property stock whose like equity is trading below 1 yen per share basically has a 20 day you know timer to get out and above and close even one day just for one day above the one yuan threshold or you're done as a company and so then i noticed this one jin k properties this black line okay i saw that it just broke below that one yuan threshold but then it traded back above it whereas the others at least on this chart hadn't done that right um, now, look, I don't know anything about this company or the stock or anything, right? But I charted it out, and here's what I found. First of all, here's Jin K Properties' longer-term stock chart, and at one yuan per share, obviously from peak, it would be down like 99% regardless of what the peak was. But as you can see, it was once at 11 not too long ago, and now it's at 1. Um, now, notice that the bottom right corner right in late may right when the stock actually broke below that one threshold and notice like this enormous like trading volume spike going on right so i zoomed into that and here's what i have first of all you see those kind of weird stair step patterns in the chart to the downside now i'm not sure about this but just generally speaking usually when i see that in like a chart um, and given the volatility of this like stupid you penny you you want stock, those are probably like limit down halts, right? And so you can see that Jin K was headed for doom, right? From one thirty to just suddenly plummeting to limit down, limit down, limit down, limit down day after day, and then finally finds itself sub point eight yuan, been well below that one yuan threshold, and. That happened right around at the end of the month, right? But not quite exactly the last day of the month when it, when it bottomed, okay? That's a familiar chart pattern. This is HSCAP. This is the Hang Seng China A Properties Index chart that I've overlaid on top. The index that bottomed well ahead of the Yuan bottoming and the Hang Seng Index bottoming and that other property developer sector bottoming um, and then reversing sharply, okay? This is that one. This is the one that I was thinking was state officials, um, insider trading activity of stocks within the index ahead of this, like, rescue stimulus announcement uh, that subsequently came out, okay? And these two match up in price action and timing perfectly, almost. And I also looked it up, and this stock is one of the constituents of this property index, okay? And so... To answer my own question of who in the hell would buy into this, like, worst sector of the world's worst equity market in meltdown just as the index was about to hit bear market territory and buy so much size that it's able to actually move the market higher, who would do that, right? Well, I mean, I'm not necessarily wrong when I say that an insider acting on material non-public information but there is another actor who i didn't think of 
who would actually buy uh, into this falling life, and that would be whoever has some sort of vested interest in keeping this company from dying, likely the remaining shareholders who are likely those who manage or work at this company, okay? So actually, it would actually still be an insider activity in that case, um, and it's still sort of market manipulation of sorts, right? It's buying to artificially keep shares afloat and alive above a, you know, an arbitrary threshold. Um, and God knows with whose money from from where they're getting it, right? Like, is it out of corporate treasury? Like, is this a massive buyback? I mean, I seriously doubt it. They obviously don't have the money to do anything, let alone do buybacks. It still might even be a state actor, for that matter, trying to orchestrate a bailout, but just doing it so on screen in public markets for everyone to see. You didn't think that anyone would notice your stupid little yuan penny stock, did you? Well, unfortunately for you, I did, and now it's on YouTube. <laughs> Regardless of who this like white knight actor is, right? The motive in this case isn't to trade ahead of a public announcement for personal gain, like Nancy Pelosi style. Um, however, ultimately, this realization actually does clarify even more of what I'm ultimately after, which is to figure out how much state policy firepower commitment is actually behind this property sector rescue stimulus. And so if by doing this kind of exercises and getting this revelation happening, right, if I'm therefore able to eliminate that it was likely not a self-serving state actor insider trading, then that means I'm also able to eliminate or at least lower the probabilities that there's real government follow through to come behind this, you know, Bloomberg stated policy of property sector rescue stimulus. Okay. And again, not that I think it matters from a market angle anyway, you know, unless they really step on the gas and hold it there to turn the situation around. But I told you guys that I'd keep you updated. So here we are. All right. So that's it for me. Thanks for tuning into Market Depth. If you like this, please hit the like button. Please subscribe. Please turn your notifications on. Spread the word. And on behalf of Blockworks Macro, my name is Weston Nakamura, and we will see you soon. Thank you.